Hello, my name is Lore. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. Listen to me, coastlands. Pay attention, peoples far away. The Lord called me before my birth, called my name when I was in my mother's womb. He made my mouth like a sharp sword and hid me in the shadow of God's own hand. He made me a sharpened arrow and concealed me in God's quiver, saying to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I show my glory. But I said, I have wearied myself in vain. I have used up my strength for nothing. Nevertheless, the Lord will grant me justice, and my reward is with God. And now the Lord has decided, the one who formed me from the womb as his servant, to restore Jacob to God, so that Israel might return to him. Moreover, I'm honored in the Lord's eyes. My God has become my strength. He said, it is not enough since you are my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the survivors of Israel. Hence, I will also appoint you as a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Galatians 1, 10 through 12. Am I trying to win over human beings or God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be Christ's slave. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the gospel I preached isn't human in origin. I didn't receive it or learn it from a human. It came through a revelation from Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Mark 1, 1 through 3, 14 through 16. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's son, happened just as it was written about in the prophecy of Isaiah. Look, I am sending my messenger before you. He will prepare your way. A voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee announcing God's good news, saying, now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. As Jesus passed alongside the Galilee Sea, he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, throwing fishing nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here. Welcome to all of you joining us online. Thanks for being here at New Life Downtown at the World Prayer Center, which is sort of like Taco Tuesdays now on Fridays. Or the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, now in the summer of 2021. Uh, We're grateful for all the ways that you've uh, pivoted and adjusted and rolled with the punches. And hopefully, uh, perhaps in October, we'll make our way back to Palmer High School. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we open up the scriptures this morning? We're going to be in Galatians 1. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the way your word confronts us, comforts us calls us to yourself. We pray now that you would do this by the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit, and everyone said, amen. What is your most memorable scam that you fell for? Don't answer that. Don't raise your hands. Maybe it was like the minor versions of it, not exactly a scam, but you, you, know, you signed up for the one-week free trial. And then you forgot to cancel, and then you look at your bank account, and darn it, $49.99 or whatever it was that you signed up for this, and you just wanted to binge watch Mandalorian, but you ended up signing up for the Ultra Uber package or whatever on Disney Plus. It's not really $49.99. Or maybe it was like back in the day, some of you are old enough to remember the CD club, you know? 
where you got like CDs for a penny or something, and then all of a sudden they're sending you the thing of the month, and you're like, wait, why am I getting all of these different albums? I didn't even, I don't even want all this. How do I get out? And you can't get out. It's like the Hotel California, you can check out, but you can never leave. Or maybe some of you remember, or, or you, you, know, you went on a vacation somewhere, and it was a nice hotel or resort, and you saw a sign at breakfast that said, join us for a one-hour talk, and we'll give you two free nights. And you're like, okay, we got an hour, let's do that, you know? And like three hours later, you're like, can't get out of here because they've pushed you on to the next salesperson. They're trying to get you to buy the timeshare. Don't, don't raise your hands, but you know what I'm talking about. There are these things that sound too good to be true and end up costing you more than you had planned. They weren't actually good news, but they presented themselves as good news. This morning, we're in Galatians 1, 6 through 16, and what we're going to talk about today is alternate gospels, alternate gospels, different versions that pretend to be good news. Now, this series we said last week, we said Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote to a group of churches in Galatia, and that, if you had a map, that's modern-day Turkey. So if you're thinking about the Roman Empire, Rome and Italy is over here, and, and way over on the eastern edge is Galatia. But it's only a little bit north and west of Jerusalem and of Palestine. And so when you think about this, it makes sense how the followers of Jesus went north and the good news of Jesus went north. But as it spread throughout the empire, it created some issues. And it created questions about who really belongs. And we're going to pull this thread throughout the whole series, who really belongs here? And how do we belong? And there were some social complications of that because Jews were granted an exemption status from worshiping Roman gods. But Christians, they hadn't quite heard of that. But as long as Christians were mostly a Jewish sect, Rome was like, cool. But then Gentiles started saying, hey, we want this exemption status too. Rome was like, who are these people? And then Jewish Christians were like, wait a minute, that's going to create all kinds of problems because now if you're with us and, but you don't actually look like us or act like us or eat like us or follow these same customs, um, maybe you should be like second tier. Maybe you should be like basic economy. Like you can't bring a carry-on. What are you doing? And then it created theological problems. Does God think of these Gentile Christians as second class? And so now we get to verse 6 in Galatians 1. And if you've ever read one of Paul's letters, you know that after he gives this greeting and opening prayer, he usually sort of says something warm about these people. You know, Philippians, I thank my God every time I think of you. But here in Galatians, he says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. Like, I'm actually stunned, not by your love for one another, but how quickly you're deserting. And then he says this word, gospel, to follow another gospel. It's not really another gospel, but certain people are confusing you and they want to change the gospel of Christ. Three times in two verses, Paul uses this word gospel. We're going to look at it in a moment. And then he says, however, even if we ourselves or a heavenly angel should ever preach anything different from what we preach to you, they should be under a curse, anathema, cursed beyond them even if they were to. And then verse 9, I'm repeating what we've said before. If anyone preaches something different from what you receive, they should be under a curse. I can just imagine Paul dictating to his scribe, and he's like, say this line, that if they preach a different gospel than the one about Jesus, anathema, curse on them. Uh, he goes, I got it. No, no, say it again. 
He's like, but I just wrote that. Write it a second time. That's how strongly Paul feels about this. It's there in back-to-back lines. So what is a gospel? How do gospels work? And here we are as Christians in 2021 in America. The word gospel, just is, it sounds like a religious word. And you think about, oh yeah, that's sort of church or that's kind of a Jesus-y word. For the Jews in Paul's day, they would have had a reference to it. This Greek word for gospel is euangelion. And many Jews in the first century would have read, been reading a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And they would have been familiar with passages in Isaiah that say, hear the good news, Yahweh is coming to his people to save. And they would have associated euangelion with Yahweh's return to his people, the return of the king. But euangelion was not an inherently religious word. In fact, it was used in normal conversations. It was used in Roman propaganda. A little bit of backdrop about Galatia. There's a road in Galatia called the Via Sebastos. Sebastos was the Greek name for Caesar Augustus. This is a little bit of history background for you. Caesar Augustus, the guy who takes over after Julius Caesar, unites this, the four fractured bits of the empire and says, we're going to make this great, and actually alters the Roman Republic to move from Republic to Emperor and Empire. You're like, that sounds like Star Wars. Very true. Very true. <laughs> and he gives himself this name in Latin, the Augustus. What's your new name? The Great One. Wow. Okay. But the Greek version of his name was the Sebastos, and there was a road built in Galatia because when Rome took over this region, he united these different tribes, some, some, some barbaric sort of tribes, and unites them and granted them Roman citizenship. Now think about this for a moment. Imagine, for, for, as Americans, do you know how lucky you are to be Americans? There are people all around the world who are like, I would give anything to have American citizenship and to be protected as an American. For these Galatians, they were so thrilled to be Romans. And they were thrilled to be sort of granted this kind of citizenship into the Roman Empire. And so there was this road called Via Sebastos. And these people in Galatia were called the Sebastenos, which means the one that Caesar favored. That's the name. That was their name. They were like, we are the lucky. We're Caesar's favorites. We're the ones. And Caesar, of course, Augustus named them that. You're my favorite. You're the ones I've had favor on. You're so lucky. You get to be Romans. Five years after Augustus' death, the Galatian commonwealth decided to build a monument near that highway, the way we still do today an arch or a bridge or something. And they build this monument to Caesar Augustus on the Via Sebastos. And on that monument, they inscribe a word. And he guesses what the word is? Gospel. Euangelion. Euangelion. Good news. In other words, in other words, the good news is about Rome. It's about Caesar. So I want to pause for a moment and say, how do gospels actually work? There were some ancient gospels, ancient versions of good news. And if you'll allow this, I want to kind of put us a bit in classroom mode this morning. Can we do that? If you're a note taker, you're like, I love classroom mode. If you're not, just hang in there. Okay. We're going we're gonna to look at how some ancient gospels work. There's a Roman version of the gospel. And here's what I mean. The reason I've got these rows that say, or these columns that say the premise, the problem, and the solution is gospels as a framework of good news 
give us a little bit of a premise about humanity and the world, and then they offer us a diagnosis like a problem, Christians would say sin, and then they give us a proposal of a solution, which we would call salvation. Gospels work that way. There's a premise. This is, a, this is my belief about humanity. This is my, the problem, the way we diagnose the problem with the world. And this is the proposed solution. Now, I'm, I'm greatly simplifying this just for us to kind of get a handle on this. But the Roman gospel takes this as its premise. Some men are born to rule and others are born to be ruled. Uh, this is a simplification, but if you re- read some of the Greek philosophers that Rome was happy to sort of incorporate, this was their premise about the world. Hey, some people were just born to rule. Rome, well, it was our destiny to conquer the world. And what's the problem according to the Roman quote-unquote gospel? There's too many barbarians in the world. <laughs> There's too many uncivilized people who don't understand the Roman way. And so what's the solution, Caesar? Oh, we'll surrender to Rome and enjoy peace and prosperity. There was a Roman writer named Tacitus who, who, who very scathingly said, the Romans pillage and plunder and they call it peace. But that was Rome's gospel. We're born to rule. You're barbarians. You need us. We'll bring you peace. But there was another gospel at work in the church in Galatia, and it's what Paul refers to as the Judaizers. They're not strictly speaking just Jewish people or Jewish belief. They were zealous about Jewish traditions in in an extreme sort of way, and Paul refers to them as the Judaizers, and their premise is this. Humans were made in God's image, but evil infects the world. You're like, yeah, yeah, that's Genesis. True. And then they said that the problem is wicked people are going to be judged, and covenant people are going to be blessed. You're like, yeah, that's Deuteronomy. And their solution is join the covenant people and enjoy God's blessings. This is what this group of people were saying in the church in Galatia. They were saying, look, Jesus is great. Jesus is good news. But Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. So if you want to get in on Jesus, you need to be like us. And we talked about this last week where they said, well, well, what does that mean? Well, Sabbath. Okay, well, I could adjust to that. Um, You've got to adjust some of your dietary stuff like no pork. Ooh, that one's going to be tougher, but maybe. And then they're like, and there's this one more thing for all the men. Um, Circumcision. They're like, yeah, I'm out. (laughs) Not going to do that. But the premise was you've got to join us, be like us, and then you can get in on Jesus. And Paul says that that, that's not the way the gospel of Jesus works. Now, we can understand that these things were at work in Paul's day, but what about our day? Are there versions of good news that operate in our world today? What are some of our modern gospels? And we could probably list a number of them, but here's a couple. How about the gospel of pluralism? The premise, maybe you've heard this at work or at school or talking with your neighbor or coworker. The premise goes like this. All religions are basically the same, but it's fundamentalism and extremism that causes division and violence. You can believe in your religious truth. Just don't be so hardcore about it. Don't say that it's the only way. And so the solution is just curate your own spirituality. Just take a little bit of Buddhism. Take a little bit of Hinduism. Sprinkle some Jesus dust on it. Use some Christianese. And that's fine. As long as it makes you a good person. 
Now, you recognize this, don't you? You've heard this. You've heard people say this. Like, isn't this all basically the same? The problem is a closer look, and if you've traveled around the world, you know they're not basically the same. And in fact, they are, they have conflicting viewpoints. Growing up in Malaysia, where there's many different religions in Malaysia, you can't tell a Muslim, try doing that, that it's basically the same as Buddhism that say, mm, it is absolutely not. And so there is a kind of Western arrogance that says, no, 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 this is our view. We, we can just sort of pick a little of this, pick a little of that, and we can put it together, and it'll all be fine. Maybe you've not heard that one, but maybe you've heard the next one, the gospel of individualism. You know, the premise that the highest good in the world is you being you. <laughs> you becoming fully yourself is the best thing that could happen. Have you heard that premise? What's the view of humanity that the gospel of individualism proposes? It says, humans are awesome, and the more fully you you can be, the better the world will be. There's a problem, and the problem is just that there's haters, and haters are going to hate, hate, hate. <laughs> and so the solution is, just tune them out. You do you. Be free to define yourself and express yourself. The gospel of individualism says, look, 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 it's all very confusing. I don't understand politics, and I don't understand religion, and I don't understand philosophy, but I understand me and my longings and my desires and me being free. Stop stopping me. Stop making me not free. Stop cramping my style. I need to discover myself and I need to be free to be myself. And you just need to get out of my way. The problem is, of course, we don't actually believe this. We might say this about certain versions of sexuality, but then we say, but, but we don't want pedophiles to be free to live according to their own perversions. So it's an inconsistent gospel, but it's presented as an absolute gospel. Find yourself in sexual freedom and express it fully. And if anyone stops you, shame on them. And what's wrong with the world is that we just can't let other people be free to be themselves. The gospel of individualism is all around us. Well, what about... The gospel of Marxism, actually all of these things, and if you were a, a, a person who read philosophy, you'd say, actually, Glenn, these things come back. They've been in Western society for a couple hundred years. It's true. Um, the, the gospel of individualism was there from Rousseau through the romantic poets, and when you get to the gospel of Marxism, that's Nietzsche and Marx and a little bit of and Freud maybe for both categories. But we're 200 years downstream from this that it's, kinda, it's just kind of in the water, and nobody's quoting people or citing their references. These are just now what we would call social instincts, where people say, yeah, yeah, that's, what, that's correct. Well, why is that correct? It just is. The gospel of Marxism, and Marx names it this way in the very opening pages of his manifesto, that the world is divided into oppressors and the oppressed. And that all of human history can be understood this way and all of society can be understood this way and that people are essentially good but those in power are the ones who restrict or corrupt their goodness. 
Nietzsche would say you need to throw off slave morality. You don't need anyone else enslaving you with morality. In fact, religion is a tool of the oppressor. Religion is a tool of the oppressor to keep you a slave. And so the solution is free the oppressed and punish the oppressor. Now, if you're listening to this, you're like, well, isn't there something true about that? The Bible is a narrative about an oppressed people being liberated. When you read Exodus, you're like, well, it does seem like God is squarely on the side of the oppressed Israel and against the oppressor Pharaoh. True. But you know what's so brilliant about the Bible? It's like two seconds after the oppressed people are liberated from the oppressor, the oppressed people are worshiping a golden calf. Because the Bible doesn't say power is bad, oppressed, the oppressed people are noble. The Bible says all are evil. And people with power will use evil for wickedness in a magnified way. But people who are not in power will still do evil things. Maybe with fewer ripple effects, but you'll st- you're still capable of sin. So Scripture's diagnosis is not we're all good, but it's power that perverts. Scripture's diagnosis is all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So God is a liberator, but he understands that liberation is not simply external, but also internal. Now, I show you these things because... You may not know the names for it. You may not have charts to think through it, but it's all around us. And there's frameworks at work in our world that say, this is the good news. This is all we need to make life work. And Paul tells the Galatians, look, I I followed human traditions and it doesn't work. Galatians 1, 13 through 16, you heard about my previous life in Judaism, how I severely harassed God's church and tried to destroy it. He's like, look, you know how I got there? He says, because I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my peers because I was much more militant about the traditions of my ancestors. Here's what Paul's saying. I took human traditions to its extreme conclusion, and it led to death. You say, well, well Glenn, I mean, some of those charts, like there's some truth in it. Surely there is a measure of truth in it. But when you look closely and you follow it to its logical conclusion, you know what you discover? It has an inadequate diagnosis of the problem. Not only that, it has an inadequate offer of salvation. Where's salvation in the gospel of individualism? Where's salvation when you followed your true self and made a wreck of your family and hurt your children? Where is salvation when everybody following their true selves rips apart the fabric of a community? Where's salvation to be found? It doesn't, it's not there. And so Paul says, look, take these, I've taken a human tradition to its extreme version and it just resulted in death and destruction. And then he says in verse 15, but God had set me apart from birth and called me through his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach about him to the Gentiles and I didn't immediately consult with any human beings. Now, Paul is doing something here, a trick that we kind of know. If I were to hum a few bars of a well-known pop song or if I were to say the first line of the song, you could probably complete it. You just did when I, when I referenced Taylor Swift and I said, haters gonna hate, hate, hate. And you know the rest of it. And you probably got the rest of the chorus in your mind because you can do that. That's how poetry works. And Paul does this all the time in his letters. He'll drop a line of poetry from 
the prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah and the listeners are going on filling in the rest of the course. They're like, oh yeah, that one. That was a bop that Isaiah wrote. (laughs) And so when he says this line about being formed in my mother's womb, the Jewish listeners to this letter are like, oh my gosh, Jeremiah. Listen to this. Jeremiah 1, the Lord's word came to me before I created you in the womb. I knew you, you were born. Before you were born, I set you apart and I made you a prophet to the nations. Same word there that Paul uses for Gentiles. So they're like, oh, Paul, you see yourself as Jeremiah. You formed the womb. You're going to the Gentiles. Jeremiah was called to the nations. And Paul wants them to say, yeah, well, what is the rest of Jeremiah about? Jeremiah 28, 15, then the prophet Jeremiah said to the prophet Hananiah, listen, Hananiah, the Lord hasn't sent you. All you're doing is persuading these people to believe in a lie. If you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, there's some confusing bits, but there's also some stories. In chapter 28 and 29, give the story. Basically, Jeremiah is saying, I got bad news. Babylon's coming. And the people are like, you are such a downer, man. And there's this other prophet who's like, peace, God's going to bring peace. And they're like, let's listen to that guy. Someone retweet him. Someone make him Instagram famous. And Jeremiah's like, look, man, you could be famous all you want, but good news that is not true news is not actually good news. And so when Paul's referencing Jeremiah, it's his way of saying to the Galatians, look, you might like this news and you might not like my bad news because it means Jews and Gentiles are now going to be one church together. You might not like my bad news, but good news that is not true news is not actually good news. And then what's he doing referencing Isaiah? Isaiah 49, we heard it this morning. Listen to me, coastlands, pay attention, peoples far away. The Lord called me before my birth, called my name when I was in my mother's womb. There it is again. What's the deal with Isaiah? The last half of verse 6, 49, Isaiah 49. Hence, I will also appoint you as a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. What is Paul saying by referencing Isaiah? With Jeremiah, it's good news that isn't true news. Is it actually good news? With Isaiah, he's saying news about God's salvation is the best news. News about God's salvation is actually the best news. Now stop for a moment. All of these other alternate gospels in the end end up being news about us. What you need to do. I've got some good news, man. You just need to try harder and sign up for my special course. Six ways to transform your... And you're like, "Ah." say, is it good news or is it just giving me more work to do? All of the good news that is about us, that's not actually good news. The best news is when it's news about God's salvation. Do you ever remember the the moment when you were in school and the teacher, I don't think they do this anymore, but the teacher would call you up to the blackboard and work out this math problem. And you're like, it's my first year doing algebra. I have no idea why there are letters in this problem. I liked it better when there was just numbers, you know. And you're standing at the board and you can't figure it out. And you, you, you you write something down, you guess, and the teacher's like, okay, that's wrong. But I got good news. You get to try again. (laughs) My friends, that is not good news. (laughs) And that's why I appreciate when people say, you know, God is a God of second chances. I appreciate that. There's something true about that. New beginnings, second chances. But a new beginning is not good news. It's just another opportunity to mess things up again. Some of you are like, I moved to a different town. I started a different job. I'm dating a new person. Oof. Bad news, same you. 
same you. You're like, oh man, wherever you go, there you are, <laughs> right? Like a second chance is not automatically good news unless you are new creation. And the best news is when it's God's salvation and his salvation actually creates new realities, a new heart, a new spirit, a new life. That's the best news possible. That's the problem with these alternate gospels is it puts everything back on us. Puts everything back on us. Well, how, how can I make justice happen in the world? I can't actually, I can't actually untangle this and I'm trying and I'm trying. But then, and, and we, we see this all the time, sometimes the biggest advocates end up being outed as being part of the problem. This happened with the Me Too movement. People who are like outspoken about it and then it's like I well, found out actually they are now having to step down because they themselves were troubling women. And you're like, why that? I mean, What? Only the gospel that gives good news about God's salvation is the best news. And so Paul says it this way. He says in verse 10, am I trying to win over human beings or God? Am I trying to please people? And the reason he's saying this is because there were some in, in Galatia who were like, Paul, we know why you're preaching Jesus and like saying we don't need circumcision. You're just trying to make people happy. He's like, that's not it. He's like, I can see that you think that, but that's not it. He says, look, I wouldn't be Christ's slaves if I was doing that. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the gospel I preached isn't human in origin. I didn't receive it or learn it from a human being. It came through a revelation of G from Jesus Christ. Amen. The word for revelation is the word unveiling. Paul says, I, I, I had human traditions, I had solutions, I had fancy theories, I had ways of making sense of the world and who's in and who's out. And then all of a sudden, someone pulled the curtain back. And I was like, oh, oh, that's, that, it's, it's Jesus. Someone asked me this week when I was sharing my notes, I said, well, maybe you should make another chart showing Jesus, you know, the premise, the problem, the solution. I said, no, that's too easy because that's the whole rest of the series. That's the, you got to stay tuned. you got to keep reading. But for today, we're going to say this. Jesus is the source and the substance of the good news. He's the source and the substance. And let me be clear about this. Paul will go on in this letter and say some very socially revolutionary things that Jews and Gentiles can eat together. But he gets there because it's Jesus that he's preaching. Not because he's like, actually, there's this really cool Greek philosopher who developed this new theory about ethnicities. And, you know. If you start with Jesus, he will be explosive enough to change everything. He's the source and the substance. And Paul will talk about the fruit of the Spirit and a different way to live and a unique kind of sexual morality and ethics. He'll talk about all those things, about what it means to bear one another's burdens. He'll get to all of that. But the reason he can get to all of that is because his gospel is about Jesus. It's from Jesus and it's about Jesus. Listen, if you've ever thought, oh, what's the gospel? There's a reason why we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gospels. What's the gospel? It's the good news about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source and the substance of the gospel. And the question for us, the question for us is, is that enough? Is that enough for you? Or are you convinced that we need Jesus plus? 
Jesus plus my theory of da 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 da. Jesus plus Republican politics. Now I'm meddling. (laughs) Jesus plus progressive politics. Jesus plus America first. Jesus plus capitalism. You're like, some of you, listen, some of you, you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense, Glenn, because Jesus is about my soul and heaven, and this stuff is about this life. That's not what Paul's saying. That idea that we can compartmentalize the gospel as in, this is my spiritual life and my afterlife, Paul's like, no. That's how you got to adding on circumcision and adding on dietary restrictions and adding on Sabbath keeping and adding on two tiers of fellowship in your churches. That's how you got, that's how Americans got to segregation is because Jesus was about forgiveness of sins and an afterlife in heaven. But, but while we're here, you can have black churches and white churches. Paul's like, anathema. Cursed be the one who teaches that because Jesus is going to blow down all the walls. He's going to blow down all the walls. All the walls. But it means you got to let it go. And you got to say, maybe I've been missing, maybe I haven't thought deeply enough about Jesus. Maybe I haven't meditated enough about how the life and death and resurrection of Jesus really does reframe my ethics and my business life and my relationships and the way that I think about society and community and church. Yes, yes. That's why this series is called The Revolutionary Gospel. Do you believe that Jesus is enough to reorder everything in your life? Or are you content to make Jesus one category and plus, 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 plus a whole bunch of other categories? It's a simple question, but a dangerous answer. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? As the worship team comes, I want you to just begin to Reflect this morning and to say, God, where have I bought into the, the false promise of a false gospel? Where have I bought into the promise of something that can't actually deliver on this? Where have, my, where have I been tempted to add on Jesus plus, Jesus plus? And to really belong, to really be my friend, you've got to have this plus this plus this plus this plus this. Lord, take us back to the place where Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Where Jesus is enough. He is the source and the substance of the best news ever. Take us to that place, Lord. In Jesus' name.